Welcome to Startup Confidential. What food and beverage industry players will never tell you that you need to know if you're running a startup. Let's do this. Welcome to episode 32, Understanding Stakeholder Classes, The Investor. Some of you may have noticed that I'm a bit tough on certain stakeholder classes in my daily LinkedIn posts, um, especially investors and finance folks. And overfunded white males in general. Well, let me just stop there before I get in trouble. Yikes. The reason I bloviate a bit on investors is that many of these folks try to seduce my clients with the fuel of growth, otherwise referred to gently as capital. And yet these same folks are, you know, I'm not very transparent about their unvested interests to newcomers, especially their motives and goals as investors. I mean, have you ever heard of an institutional investor who hands a founder a detailed warning sheet like you get when you sign a mortgage? I haven't. There's more consumer protection for your credit card and your car loan than there is for signing away a percent of your company to strangers in return for a big check. It's almost like the regulators assume that, well, come on, only, only well-connected rich assholes surrounded by attorneys would ever get institutional capital. We don't need to have protection laws and regulations. Everybody's at the same level, right? <clears throat> Awkward. In fact, institutional investors have no incentive to be very transparent to the noob. In fact, uh, when they smell noob, they're going to get generally less transparent. Now, if they were super honest at that point, it, it wouldn't look very attractive to you or to anyone. In fact, it would drag out the term sheet in our iteration process painfully. A new investor, for example, goes into a deal intending to learn, earn less than the founder when all is said and done because it doesn't really benefit their LPs, their limited partners on Wall Street, to allow that to happen. Now, I'm sure it has happened, but generally they're hell-bent on earning far more than you on any exit deal. Now, if you're getting a $10 million check, you're probably not going to cry, but they definitely made a lot more money off the deal than you. That's what they're in the business of doing. And a messy cap table of angel investors will definitely turn them off, even if it's literally got your company to where it is today. In a way, investors are a lot like retailers. They make far more money per unit than you ever will. And, you know, for retailers, that's the privilege that they lord over you in return for getting your brand in front of millions of eyeballs every week in their stores, which they spend millions operating. I remember shocking one client once when I offered unsolicited the uh, apparently lesser known fact that there's a type of deal out there, folks, in which the investor goes in with dead leverage in the terms because they don't trust the founder at all and they plan all along to replace him or her tout de suite they just wait for them to up royally and then the debt converts into a controlling stake the founder may be aware of this possibility intellectually up front or not so much uh, and sometimes it doesn't go over very well there are many many decapitated founders who simply got fired more or less in this manner in better such situations, they get turned into figureheads and are still involved as PR whatever marionettes. The kind of takeover deals I'm referring to are product-driven deals coming from investors who never had the slightest faith in the founder and his or her team and have their own operating teams ready to assemble. I, I can't say such investors or investor takeovers have never led to good financial results for both parties. I mean, they have, but the entire process can get pretty shady and not exactly honest 
involving occasional bullying and the like. And it honestly, it's just so old school, really. In this episode series, I want to try to keep things fair, though. And so in the spirit, I want to share more balanced thoughts on various stakeholder classes, like brokers, agencies, distributors, retailers, and investors, rather than just highlight the negative patterns. So this is going to be a series because I just can't be fair to all five stakeholder classes if I give them two minutes each. I mean, come on. Not without speaking in shorthand, which I don't know. So who do I start with? Maybe I roll a five-sided die? No, I don't have one of those anymore. Well, let's begin with our dear lords of capital. Okay, trigger warning, folks. This series involves social generalizations. Now, social generalizations, the way I was trained, uh, they're valid if they apply to, you know, at least three-quarters of the group members that you're describing, and they aren't completely random randomly coincidental with the members of that group. So that's my standard. Um, You're welcome to argue that I haven't met it as you listen to this series. Happy to hear those debates. But you can argue, and I won't let you argue, that I can't make a social generalization, you punk ass. All right. While it's true that fast-growing brands almost always need to raise outside capital at some point to supplement their gross profits, it's not true that firms, the firms, excuse me, that you read about in the media are the ones you have to do deals with just to succeed or scale. I have a growing list of brands that have grown steadily off of their gross profits, commercial loans, and angel rounds. It's possible. It's possible to scale doing that. I'm not saying that you have to do that, but I'm just saying it's possible and it's happened many times before. Institutional investors raise money, just so you know, from from folks that are called limited partners or LPs. And these folks manage large funds on Wall Street. These funds need ways to deploy enormous amounts of capital according to their various risk strategies and risk mitigation strategies. So diversifying their investments into many splinters is is obviously the key in modern fund management. Now, some splinters head towards private funds, be they private equity funds or venture capital funds. And those, I'll talk about the difference in a little bit. So you're not likely to ever meet these glorious LPs. But the folks you're signing docs with, the general partners of institutional funds, oh, they do. And their primary legal responsibility is to make money for them, not you. You're a secondary obligation. At best, at worst, um, you're literally a tool to prove that our funds are being probably and intelligently deployed. The better institutional investors in our world, they've accumulated a great deal of institutional knowledge of early-stage brand building internally and within their network of advisors and alumni. Their strategy types are like me, and they're the ones who endorsed my book. Nothing's random, folks. But these folks are generally not ex-operators like you are. Remember that. There's always that gap of perspective. So chosen well, I've got to say that these firms can deploy capital in much larger tranches than any bank will ever loan to you, and without that crushing interest payment series. They also can activate a network of other stakeholders, the bank certainly can, to help facilitate a more strategic, for example, a more strategic and less capricious sequencing of retail accounts, which is what I advocate when I work with clients. They can network you with peers who are also ahead of you on the ramp. And these are folks that are, you know, mini celebs in some cases, and they're very hard to get a hold of, and they don't respond to email, and they spend all their time shooing people away. Shoo, shoo, shoo. But you need to be ready for these kinds of assets, right, that I just described. And they're cool. And it's easy to fantasize about them, about the money and the connections, and la, 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 la. 
and that's when you're most likely to be taken advantage of by venture capitalists who tend to invest earlier in the revenue curve. You may or may not know what the fuck they're doing, to be honest, or, or who may pretend to have access to networks that they really don't have access to. So there are two types of private institutional firms. There's the venture capitalist and the private equity firm. Now, they primarily differ in their investment theses. One is using debt, the private equity firm, and the other venture capitalist is using raw check funds for the most part in return for a percent of the company. You know, how that works on your P&L, it works very differently once you get into it. So they differ in their investment theses. But what's more important to you is that the private equity folks generally... Not always, but generally they wait until the brand, you, are more stable, farther up the revenue curve. And, you know, you may still be lower middle market, um, but you're not going to be a $2 million company usually. And so the private equity firms, the better ones that I know that wait that long, right, to get involved, they're going to be picking from the most professionalized entrepreneurs with the more stable, high potential brands that have a lot of data to support their long-term growth potential, or at least the potential to grow uh, well enough so they can engineer an exit before the growth stops, <laughs> which is another topic I won't get into on this episode. <laughs> but the point is that private equity, in my opinion, they generally work a lot closer with founders and their teams because they've made fewer bets. They've waited till you're bigger so they don't have to spread their bets as thinly. You know, getting a $30, $50 million company to $200 million, it, it's a big deal, but it's not nearly as unlikely, folks, statistically, as getting a $1 million company to $10 million or a half million dollar company to $10 million. It's very unlikely. PE firms generally tend to invest in fewer, bigger bets. And what that means is you get more time. And time is important if they have the right connections because they're going to get you connected to the resources you need that aren't about money. You know, you're going to have an actual relationship with these people, which is why you need to choose them carefully. You need to get along with them. Venture capitalists, in general, have a very, very low success rate of exiting. PE firms generally exit everything. Now, the the multiple may be shitey, but they generally move it all along. Move along. Venture capitalists have shit blow up in their face all the time and just write shit off. Okay, and part of it's they're investing too early in the curve when things are unstable, when the teams aren't professional, yada yada, because they don't know how to pick the damn businesses. Sorry. They have a very low success rate on average, so they tend to spread things, spread wide and far, smaller checks, diversification. It's almost kind of like a private ETF approach, right? Invest in 50 companies because, you know, for Christ's sake, half of these things are going to blow up in front of our face in nine months in, right? So the money's almost written off. It's much more like a uh, Vegas gambling than the PE folks. And the problem with that approach is that although it might get more companies fun, uh, some money, they don't tend to have a big relationship with those VC people unless they already had one before. You know, you're not going to get a lot of their time. And they have no incentive to invest a lot of time in you because the odds are pretty low that you're the one, baby. So this is like volumetric dating to find your wife versus a more standard romantic sequential approach. It's just what it is. It's weird. You know, my bias is probably clear, but generally angel capital folks is preferred alternative to VC in those early years. As long as you have at least amassed the advisors and other experts who can lend you an advanced strategic wisdom and connections that you need to get things moving so that you're not just a loner taking checks, right? Not only is there more wealth out there to in family offices today. Oh my Lord, there's so many G1 family offices, people. Oh my God. There are far, those folks are far less likely to bully you into this or that strategy because they wouldn't know what the fuck 
growth strategy is in CBG if it bit them in there? And honestly, even if they tried to bully you, and I know some do, it's going to be a lot easier to counterpunch the paper tiger who's totally full of... All right? So the grand bargain of institutional capital is that you receive the founder an influx of capital in return for giving away a significant share of the exit price or of your future profits if you remain private. But do you really need that much freaking money all at once? Like 10 times more than a commercial bank will give you? Five times more? Maybe, maybe not. I have seen folks squander it and achieve little because they weren't ready to handle the browbeating investors, and they're going to tend to be that way when you get involved in institutional. They're very strong opinions, and they're not going to listen to idle dismissing of them, right? You got to be ready for that. All I can say is you have to have very polished verbal skills, more polished than you're listening to right now, trust me, to tell your lead investor from VMG that you disagree with their strategic recommendations. I'm sure they'll entertain that discussion. They're professionals, but you better have together, man. And I can advise you right now that you'll want to be super transparent and open when you do disagree. Because if you get all weird and passive aggressive and start hiding disagreements and then act unilaterally against a prior consensus, you will have a very painful lawsuit on your hands. (laughs) And you'll only have yourself to blame. So are you ready for what I just described? If not, do not take institutional money. Please keep hitting up them angels. Now, if I were you, I would stay away from VCs entirely. That, that, that's where I'm netting out right now. Maybe I'll change my opinion in nine months, but I don't like what I smell and I see. Stay away from those folks. Professionalize yourself. And if necessary, get private equity funds to help out later on up the ramp where things like paid advertising become important and hard to fund off of your own P&L. Now, I just pissed off some folks for sure with this one. And, you know, like I said, there's a way to counter-argue what I just said. But I haven't been impressed with a lot of the VCs in the CBG space. I know a few that are, I am impressed with, but, you know, most of these folks are ideological missionaries with money. They're not that savvy in the industry. And they haven't got a lot of savvy business strategic wisdom to share. Remember, there's no rush to get this kind of money early on. Criminy, folks. Why does everyone feel like they have to get $10 million checks the second year in business? Look, if you're growing exponentially off a $500,000 trailing base, you have at least four years before you need to scale tens of millions of dollars every year, before you probably need to raise large amounts of capital that aren't going to come from a commercial bank or a bunch of uh, cocktail-wielding angels. That didn't sound right. Anyways, um, use these early years to search the top PE players and financial brokers who can get you in front of them, who can help you position you in front of them. You know, that kind of patient approach to getting the best of the best and getting them to respect you when you're not desperate for cash is going to do far better in the long run for your business than getting into bed hastily with VCs who are much more likely to come at you when you're smaller VCs of dubious value, dubious connectivity, dubious value add. But, you know, they kind of gut you now because you played your, oh shit, I need a million five or I'm out of business. So regardless of which institutional investors you work with, work with the best folks. The folks with a strong serial exit track record and a track record of treating founders with respect, privately and publicly, you know? And please run from anyone who acts like they stepped out of the cast of Treasure of the Sierra Madre. 
if you haven't watched that film, you really should. But the moral is basically, everybody's all friends and lovey-dove before they find the gold. And then you find out who you're really climbed into bed with. Be safe out there, folks. Dr. Richardson's new book, Ramping Your Brand, is available now on Amazon. Please check it out and spread the word. And don't forget also to take his Founders Quiz to see if your team is ready to ride the ramp of exponential growth. You can download the quiz at rampingyourbrand.com anytime. And feel free to share your scores with Dr. Richardson anytime at james at premiumgrowthsolutions.com.